Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're talking about violence in the world's high places with journalist Judith Matlov and her book, The War is in the Mountains. Judith Matlov teaches conflict reporting at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism and has been writing about international affairs for 30 years. She has written for publications including The Economist, Financial Times, Newsweek, New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. She spent a decade at Reuters in various staff positions in Europe and Africa and has pioneered safety training for journalists around the world, with clients including the United Nations and the Society of Professional Journalists. Previously the author of Fragments of a Forgotten War and Homegirl, Judith is now the author of The War is in the Mountains, Violence in the World's High Places, which we're going to talk about today. Judith, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello. So would you sum up what The War in the Mountains is about for us, first of all? Well, what I have discovered over the years is that mountains account for 25% of the world's surface and 10% of its population, and yet they account for a disproportionate number of the conflicts, particularly the most enduring intractable conflicts. So it's, it's a huge disparity, and that was something that I wanted to explore in the book, why that was. And of course there are plenty of places in the world where there are mountains, as we'll actually discuss as you do at the end of the book, as we get to the end of the interview, where there aren't conflicts or where there are conflicts of a long time in the past. So what are the, in general, sort of like common aspects do these regions have that might ignite that conflict? Well, it's twofold. First of all, people tend to run to mountains to get away from other places. So what you find in places like Mexico, for instance, wherever there's been resistance um, over the decades and the centuries against, let's say, Spanish rule and now centralized rule, it tends to reoccur in the same places. So there's a, almost a collective memory and a culture of resistance. Then you also have the fact that mountains are the perfect barrier. They are the friend of the poppy grower and the rebel and the outlaw. If you want to hide from authority, that's where you want to go. And you can run, when you look at the world's uh, two leading narco insurgencies in Colombia and Mexico, again, they're always in the mountains. And then the geographic barriers to controlling these people and taming these people, as we've seen well over the ages in Afghanistan, these barriers to invasion and domination also create for the people that live there a very insular mentality. Usually the people that live in these communities have lived there for as far back as we can remember. Rivers and plains are like highways where cultures mix. They don't mix in the mountains, and they tend to be very, very small communities, very insular. People depend on each other for survival. They're very close-knit communities, and there will be a natural distrust about anything that's over the, the other side of the mountain. And usually, mountain people are left alone unless somebody wants to come in and get something from them, be it water or uranium or mining or whatever. And so there's a sense of being very forgotten, being islands in the sky culturally, and yet um, they're very, very marginalized. Usually the poorest people live in mountains, so it's the last place to build roads and schools and clinics and plumbing. And then you also have the fact that they're oftentimes indigenous populations. 
So they're, they're people who are very much rooted to this land, and there are oftentimes pagan religions there. So there's a sense of, of land worship that you don't necessarily have in more diverse communities elsewhere in the plains. Yeah, and it might seem odd to describe, you know, completely diverse people in various places around the world as, as having sort of similar traits because they live in mountains. But indeed, there is this a thing, the World Mountain People's Organization. The book starts with you visiting their yearly get-together, yearly conference. So who are they and what do they do? This, this is an incredible group. It's the only geographically based group that's global in the world. You don't have a World Swamp People's Organization or a World Desert People's Organization. The World Mountains People's Organization was um, founded in 2002 and it groups mountain people from about 70 different countries. And what I found so striking when I met them was that you could have a, a Tuareg with a, with a, you know, a turban, and then you have a, a, a very petite, indigenous, Quechua-speaking Indian from, from Bolivia or Ecuador, and then you have a very, very tall man from the Pyrenees, and they all feel that they have something in common which is a certain sense of connection to the land that they live in and a sense of grievances against the, the flatland centralized governments in which, which are controlling them. So what does the organization do for them? Well, it's really interesting when you, when you go to their meetings because everybody's in their native dress and they rotate around the world. Uh, this past year was Morocco. I'm not, they haven't yet dis- announced where it's going to be next year. So they visit each other's areas and they eat each other's cheese and yogurt. And they compare notes on development, and it's it's a lot like a gripe session and a support mm-hmm. group in a solidarity group in certain ways. And they learn about each other. They will try to work together in global organizations such as the United Nations, but they're they're so dispersed that really, as a political force, they're really not very effective. But it, it's like an international support group. So let's start with the first place you visit, Albania. Um, obviously, you know, relatively recently in history, it was part of the, the Soviet sphere, although they were, um, you know, they, they had something to say about that themselves. And in well, fact, were hardened, even hardened Stalin, Stalinists. Than they yeah, are. they were actually closer to China mm-hmm. than to, to the Soviets. Yeah, they were a harder line than anybody. Yeah. And then obviously that's, you know, Albania now is sort of on the very edges of Europe, both, you know, geographically and economically and one of those countries that's you know looking at the European Union jealously and wanting sort of part of that um so you went to Albania tell us first of all about the country itself before we move up into the mountains and meet those people what's Albania like at the minute it's I think it's still trying to emerge from decades and decades and decades of of complete insularity I mean there, there were years when you couldn't even import a car and um, as a matter of fact, some people I was driving around with in the, in the mountains, they had a car that was steering on the wrong side of the road. They had imported them from Britain because they were cheap. And you can actually do that in Albania. You can drive the wrong side you know, of, of the steering wheel on the right side of the road. I mean, it's just bizarre. But um, it is westernizing very quickly, and it, and it has since they began to open up in 1990. But, but what hasn't opened up is the north of the country, what's called the Dineric Alps. It's a very, very remote and rugged area. And in the winter, for instance, for four or five months, you just can't get through because boulders and snow block the roads. And the roads, there are just very, very, they're either goat paths, which you walk on, 
or they're, um, they're very, very narrow paths, usually on a precipice with, without a guardrail that will drop, you know, 300, 400 feet into, into a river. And their people live the way they have for hundreds, if not even thousands of years. They live by something called the canoon, which is an ancient, an ancient set of codes, which basically dictate social uh, relations as well as um, administer justice. And the justice that they administer there are blood feuds. So it's very clan-based, and it's, it's very much like the Bible. It's an eye for an eye for a tooth for a tooth. And if somebody causes an offense to honor, such as they might insult your daughter or their goat might happen to go into your yard and eat your hay, that's grounds to kill a male in that family. And then there's a series of reprisals, and this can go on for decades and decades and decades, where these families are locked in this very intimate war. Now, the thing is, because the area is so remote, the area where I went to in particular, I went to a little village, there's no court and there's no police precinct. So this ancient form of justice still continues, as it did probably in the Bronze Age, but certainly as it did in the Middle Ages. And this is also a good example of somewhere where this is a, you know, it's a poor country. They're just struggling to reassert themselves as, as a country again themselves. And obviously, you know, people that live in the cities are struggling to some degree. And so the government itself is not basically there for the, the people that live in these outer regions. The infrastructure, the roads, the, like you said, the schools, hospitals yeah. are basically not there as they would be in, you know. I mean, there was one community I would say, if somebody gets gravely ill, you have to walk a long distance to get to somewhere else where you can get cell reception, and then you call and the authorities and hope they send in a helicopter. I mean, that's kind of, you know, how it works there. And people still, they shout to each other from from, uh, hilltop to hilltop, or there are really more mountains there. But what is so striking about these blood feuds is that over the past 20 years, 10,000 men have died. It's always men. And that's a staggering amount of people. And this is a country that's one hour's flight from Rome that wants to join the EU. And yet you have this very, very ancient form of justice being administered. And what, what I found particularly tragic, and I follow this family in this chapter, is that um, as soon as a boy comes of age, he's given a gun and he's also told that he can't leave the house because the only sanctuary that you have from the blood feuds, if the feud is hanging over, the blood curse is hanging over your house, your home is a sanctuary. But if you leave it, you could be gunned down at any point. And so there, at the moment, there's something, there's anywhere from 600 to 800 boys being homeschooled or not being schooled at all because they just can't leave the house. So I met a young man, he was 13 at the time, and he desperately wanted to break the curse over his family. But he couldn't because the tradition runs so strong. And you say it is a tradition. There are all these, this is not just some violent free-for-all. There's all these like formalised rules. So as you said, they can't be killed at home. Therefore, if they just don't leave the house ever, they're not going to get killed. But also there's a time period in which, you know, they're allowed to be killed, which will eventually run out, which is like 100 years or something. So therefore, one family might leave it 30 years before they bother doing anything about you know, fulfilling their part of the, of the blood feud. Right, and that was the case with the family in question in my chapter because um, the avenging family were actually, in the local terms, considered very good people and very humane people, so they waited to kill one of the adults until his sons had grown up so that they would not grow up without a father and so that they could support themselves 
Um, so there, there are norms of decency, but people feel they have to fulfill this. And there's this incredible contradiction between modern law, uh, Western-style modern law, and the, these ancient canoon codes, because in the old days, two families might get sick of killing each other every year or whatever, and then they would get together in the Times Square, in, in, the, in the town square, and they would declare a truce called Besa. And then everything would end. Everybody would celebrate, and there'd be a party, and they wouldn't, then they'd probably kill somebody else. But that family would be all you know, resolved and tied up. Now, because of modern law, if you stand in the middle of the square and the whole community comes out and you announce that you've killed somebody and it's over, you'll go to jail. Mm -hmm. So people aren't declaring the basis like they did before. So the feuds just carry on. There's not right. the, so, so now it seems to be down to sort of like individual people who set themselves up as, as sort of individual, uh, as independent arbitrators. And actually, you you talk to like a lot of those people seem like a bit a bit shady. But you talk to this woman, Sister Christina, a nun, um, who's not from Albania. She's German, I think. Was she yeah. German? Who's basically living there and has you know took it upon herself to try and do something about this. She sounds like a remarkable woman. She really is saintly. I mean, occasionally you run into people like this. I I met Nelson Mandela many years when I when I was living and working in South Africa, and she had the same sort of aura of just somebody who's at a higher moral stance than most of us ordinary mortals. So what does she do? What sort of things is she actually doing? She had all people living in the house. Yeah, she gives people sanctuary so they can have normal lives. She has a little school for the boys that can't leave. She has therapy sessions for them because it's really traumatizing for <laughs> these kids. And for the adults as well. She gets the adults jobs. Because oftentimes in a community, if you live under the blood curse, until you avenge it, you're ostracized to a certain extent in society. You're shunned. Nobody wants to socialize with you. They certainly don't want to walk down the street with you in case you get shot and there's a straight bullet. So she gives dignity to these folks. She gives them sanctuary. Um, if the kids go to a school further away, they'll drive with a bodyguard, for instance. And then she tries to mediate truces. The Catholic Church, this is a Catholic part of of Albania. One reason why it's, it's Catholic is the Ottomans never could reach this area precisely because of the mountains. Mm -hmm. So it remained Catholic all these years. And the Catholic Church has incredible sway and um, influence in this part of the society. So she tries to organize these truces, but um, it's really beyond her. It really is. I mean, the, the, the blood code runs deeper than modern religion in terms of trying to resolve it. I'm Alex Cox. And this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's move on to, to Mexico. And in your chapter on Mexico, you visit two different mountainous regions that are having sort of similar but at the same time contrasting experiences with the people that live there. The first place is a, a holdout where the Zapatista rebels basically hold up. Tell us who they are and what and what they're what they're doing. Yeah, they're Mayan indigenous people and they rose up in nineteen ninety four, right before NAFTA came into um, being. And they this is an area where ever since the Spanish arrived in Mexico five hundred years ago, this particular area, the Mayan Indians kept rising up and rising up and rising up in successive rebellions. And this was the latest one. It began in 1994. And they basically wanted their own little autonomous area. They just wanted to be left alone. And this is a theme that runs throughout the book. So many of these mountain populations, they're an ethnic minority. They feel marginalized. They just want to be left alone. But the Mexican state didn't want them to be left alone and has been persecuting them since. And basically what happened is uh, the, after a period of time, the Zapatistas 
declared that they were no longer fighting. They were just going to withdraw deep into the jungly hills, into communities that they call caracoles, which are snails. They're these defensive communities, and they're actually built like a snail. They're circular, with circular almost fortresses. And they've withdrawn into these communities, and they basically shut out the world. And they have their own uh, local government, their own local councils. They have their own pharmacies. They have their own doctors. They have their own schools where they teach their version of history. And the Mexican state isn't too happy about them, and periodically uh, paramilitary forces will come in and harass them. But for the most part, they just live, they've cut themselves off from wider society. And you went to visit a couple of those places. So yeah. What are they like? The first one you go to, I mean... Tourists, it has a gift shop. You know, you tourists can go there and get sort of, you know, like rebellion chic. Yeah, that, that was a little bit jarring, but as it was pointed out to me, they need to make a living somehow, mm. and if they can make it off of the tourists, you know, so be it. I, I'm not going to judge them. This, so they were, they were suspicious. They're very suspicious of outsiders, but they're tolerant. The other one was far, far, far into the, the jungly highlands, so that one took hours and hours to get to, and that one is not visited by tourists, and they do not have a, a, um, a gift shop. But um, and what happened is I came with a letter from a priest who had their trust. And the problem was I got to the blue cattle gate, which serves as the entry into the caracol. And the young woman there who was manning the, the gate, she must have been about 14 years old, she couldn't read. So then she had to go into inside the catacol and then talk to the, the ruling council. And after hours and hours and hours, they finally let me and my colleague, the photographer, come in and meet them. But they said, we'll meet you and we'll entertain you for a few minutes, but we're not really going to answer any questions. But thank you for visiting, but we really don't want visitors. They were very polite and they basically were just not interested. So the, the other region, La Montaña, which is, um, actually means the mountains, <laughs> it's sort of similar situation in that the, the mountain people there rebelling against the, the central Mexican government but not just the government also this is much more in the in the sort of area where obviously the uh, the drug wars are going on as well so let's first of all i guess that the drug wars what impact does that have on the people um well the thing is drugs are most easily grown and trafficked from mountains mm-hmm. and if you look at where in mexico and colombia where the biggest drug areas are they're in mountains you can do your work in quiet it's very hard for people to burn down your fields if you're up in a mountain uh, you've got the, the cloud cover, the canopy, and the rugged, no roads terrain to protect your, uh, to serve as a sanctuary for your work. So when you look at all, really all major narco areas, uh, look at Burma, look at Central Asia, Afghanistan, the mountains figure very, very predominantly, and this is just one of them. But what impact was that then having on the people that live there that weren't involved in that trade? Yeah, they weren't too happy about having all these uh, narco poppy growers uh, in nearby, so they chased them out. And some miners came in, they wanted to mine some silver and gold. Likewise, the, these very hardy mountaineers, they chased them out. What they did is they, like in Albania, they lived so far from the, the center. I mean, again, it's an area where there's no cell reception, people don't have internet, they're very poorly educated. There are no health facilities within a, you know, a reasonable distance. So people just continued living the way they always lived with traditional tribal councils. And they've always had self-defense in these communities going back hundreds and hundreds of years. And so they have their, their own police force and they go after people and pick up trucks with their guns and they chase them out of town. And then, and then they lock them up in the church, in the basement of the church. 
and that's their jail, and then they judge them with what appear to me largely kangaroo courts. Um, so they're just, but it's their form of justice, you know. Don't go into their areas, you know, or else you have to face their justice. So you talk to a guy, one of the leaders. Is it Serino? Serino Placido. So it seemed like the whatever was going on there, the organisation that he had was not being as sort of cohesive as the Zapatista movement that you no. that you met before. What was the difference? Um, they're closer to the towns, I think. They're a little bit more integrated. There was a lot of ego, um, as oftentimes happens in any political movement. And yes, indeed. And also, they were different ethnic groups. They weren't one cohesive group. Uh, there, it, it was a couple of ethnic groups sort of strung together. Yeah, I think ego was part of the problem. And again, the situation that these people have is that, you know, they're far from the nearer to the towns, but, you know, far from the centre of centre of government and are easy to ignore. Yeah, and I'll give you an example. When I left Serino's house, I stayed with him overnight um, on his cement floor, and it was pouring with rain. It was absolutely torrential. And what I didn't know at the time is it was a freak meeting of two tropical storms. Mm-hmm. And the rain was so torrential, and people in the mountains know the weather. And Serena said, you know, you really should leave. It, this, is, this is really, really serious. So the photographer and I left, and we really got out just in time because, oh, you, you know, as we were driving, you know, trees were falling, and we got stuck in mud, and by the time we got to the main town, Acapulco, far, far later, uh, the water was like, it was neck deep. I mean, it was like Houston, the Houston hurricane. Um, but what happened was, we got out in time, but all the people in the mountain were still there, and for three months, uh, they were cut off from the rest of the world, just due to the storm, the landslides, whatever. Nobody could get through with aid, and they were just cut off for three months. And that's what it's like there. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Judith Matloff. We're talking about the war is in the mountains, violence in the world's high places. And Judith, we're staying in, well, South America rather than Central America, but further down the the continent into the Andes and Colombia. And I guess here we can see, we've already set this up by talking about, you know, mountains and drugs. Um, But there's another rebellion here, the FARC, which is like a long-lasting organization and perhaps we can see a possible future for what there are those rebellions are in, in Mexico and this is an organization that has basically had or had you know there's been and since the book was written further sort of progress on the ceasefires and things but this is an organization that went from being you know your classic Marxist rebellion into basically being a criminal organization didn't it yeah, they were yeah, a narco-insurgency. That's exactly what they were. Um, and the reason why the, the movement was around for 50 years and what sustained them was the mountain. You know, you can, you can napalm a jungle or, you know, you can bomb a desert, but you can't, you can't get rid of the mountains. They're, they're immutable they're, and unmovable. And the other thing about the FARC was that, and this is going to be really interesting to look ahead, so... Yes, they did sign a peace agreement with the government, and for all intents and purposes, there are 700 fighters. Most of them have gone into the towns to demobilize and whatnot, but they've left a vacuum 
in the in the drug trade. And what we're seeing now is right wing paramilitary forces, or just organized crime called bad crime. They're moving in and t- filling the vacuum. So the the narco insurgency, as it were, is still going to exist, but it's going to exist with a different group than before. And until the government can build proper roads, what they really need is like a Marshall Plan for that country. I mean, these areas are so remote, so isolated, that until the government can find some way to control them, uh, all this um, organized crime activity is going to continue. And again, you're talking about a country where the government itself is, you know, it's got enough on its plate in the rest of the country, obviously dealing with that, you know, the sort of the, the narco wars anyway. But this is like a, you know, it's a, it's a relatively poor country, which has got, like I said, it's got it's got its own problems to be dealing with, which is, again, what makes these sort of things intractable. Yeah. And what what is really, really interesting here, you know, I was looking at it um, from a tactical point of view. And what, over the course of history, there, there have rarely been mountain defenders, irregular troops in the mountains who've been defeated militarily by a, a conventional outside force. And Colombia is a perfect example of that, that the, the government just couldn't wipe them out militarily. They weakened them, but they couldn't wipe them out. And ultimately what ended the war between the two parties was a political agreement. And again, the, the length that this took, this was like a 50-year insurgency, you know, obviously the FARC could hide in the mountains, and that's obviously one of the reasons that, you know, that caused it to last so long. But like the converse of that is that the mountains mean that the resolution doesn't come. You know exactly. This, this. Yeah. I mean, I, I I've been accused of being a geographic determinist. <laughs> I like to say a possibilist, <laughs> but but yeah. I, I mean, I think we tend to look at things in terms of religion or ideology, north versus south, and I think we tend to forget that geography does play a role, and certainly in less developed parts of the world. Let's go right over the other side of the world now to Nepal. And here's an example of a community in the mountains that is being threatened by outside forces. In this case, the damming of rivers that they rely on by India. I think it was India or China India in this case. India and Nepal were together planning to build a very high dam on the Septi Kosa River but at a part that was in Nepal, not in mm-hmm. India. So tell us about the people, you go there to Nepal and you spend time with the people who's, who are, are going to lose their, their sort of homeland, their river. Um, who were these people? Yeah, they're called the Rai. It's an indigenous group. Well, I guess everybody's indigenous in Nepal. Uh, they make up less than 3% of the population, but they make up a disproportionate number of people in the Gurkha forces. They're mm-hmm. renowned for their fighting, as many mountain people are around the world. And, and again, you know, think about the Gurkhas, they came from the mountains. And so these folks, they're really interesting because unlike most Nepalis, they bury their dead. And they, like many Nepalis, they also worship their dead. And so they worship the land in which their ancestors are buried. And they've been in this one area for hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. And this area would be thoroughly deluged and they would be displaced if this dam is built. And they're really, really resentful because the Nepali government never came in and built schools for them, never came in and built clinics, and now they want to come and steal their water and take their land. So they're sharpening up their Gurkha knives. You know, they've had some very, very noisy, loud protests, and they told me they're ready to move to the next step. They're willing to fight and to die for this cause. It's their land. And it's not only just their land. It's, for them, it's existential. It's who they are is tied to this land. 
it's you know it's a very very profound thing and and it's not something rational and they're really really remote these folks are um they're well off the 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 normal trekking path so a lot of them had never met a foreigner before and i had to take a flight from the capital of Kathmandu to an industrial city called Baratnagar and then from there drive several hours and then from there walk about um on a very very narrow precipice i had to walk about four or five hours and i got to this tiny little community which numbered only 250 people and they had invited me for a two-day ceremony for the dead so i really got to see how the, the ancestor worship and um, so on the way walking there, my guide is a, a man who's in his 70s or 80s, and he's running ahead. I can't even keep up with him, and I'm a pretty fit person. And, um, and along the way, we run into these two elderly women, and they have their dress very traditionally, and they have, they're in plastic sandals. I'm wearing, like, my heavy hiking boots, and, you know, I got my backpack and my puffy jacket, and, you know, I haven't taken a bath in several days. And they're wearing saris or things similar to saris and little plastic sandals and beautiful nose rings that are about two inches long of a golden fish. So the women look at me, and they say to the, the elderly gentleman, and the translator, they go, what is that thing? And he said, well, this is a foreigner. And they said, is it male or woman, uh, female? And they had a debate. They decided that I was neither. And then they said, well, it must have fallen from the sky. Like there was no other explanation for this weird apparition. And then they asked the translator, said, how do you communicate with it? And he said, I speak their language. And they, they said, that's the most ridiculous thing we ever heard. And then they just walked away. <laughs> and it, it was a really gorgeous moment because... Um, most communities were very, very welcoming, but sometimes very skeptical. It's like, what is this thing? This thing is really weird. And, um, and then they just walked away, and that was it. And they, but the village was very welcoming. They, they couldn't give me enough food. They were lovely. And oh, you, you brought up the Gurkhas, and I, I wanted to mention them. And we've, you know, we've already mentioned that there's an idea that mountain people are somehow distinct from other people. And obviously there's a lot of conflict in these places. Therefore, they, you know, they're born in, into conflict. Good fighters... But the Gurkhas, and we're talking here now, these are the Uber Mountains, you know what I mean? This is the Himalayas. These people live, like, I have terrible asthma, right? I could not even survive up there. You know, these guys grow up, are born, live. Their lungs are huge. And the thing about altitude is that your average individual like us, with asthma or without, cannot survive, if we're plains people, mm -hmm. we cannot survive at fourteen to 18,000 feet. Uh, we would struggle. But people who grew up in the Himalayas or the Andes at that height can. As a matter of fact, the Colombian army, for the, um, the crack troops that would go in after the FARC, they like to hire indigenous people from the mountains because their bodies have adapted. You know, the blood is thinner, the lungs are bigger, the center of, body, uh, the center of gravity in their body is, is more balanced. They're very nimble-footed. And take somebody like that. Like, look at all the long-distance runners that come from Ethiopia and Kenya. They trained at high altitudes. Mm -hmm. So then when they run, like, the Boston Marathon or the London Marathon, they have such a huge advantage. Well, it's kind of like that with the Gurkha. Well, we'll come back to, to what they eventually, the way they actually dealt with it in the end, later on, towards the end of the interview. But jumping forward, jumping forward in the book a bit, you talked to a, a, an American serviceman who had served in Afghanistan, and... Amazingly, there was no thought or preparation that went into the idea that America was going to be fighting a war really high up, was there? It's, it's the most ridiculous thing. Um, the US has the world's largest expeditionary force, and they do not have a dedicated mountain unit. They did in World War II, but they don't today. Nearly all of our NATO allies do, 
Colombia does, India does, China does, Russia does, uh, Pakistan does, the United States does not. The American fighting man is supposed to be able to fight in a desert, in a city, and a mountain. But the skills are very different for all three. Even the way you shoot your gun, it has to be done on a slope. The bullet travels in a different way. If it's extremely cold, below freezing, your machinery and your, your ballistics are going to work in a different way. That requires very special training. So what happened in the first major battle of um, Afghanistan in 2002, the unit that won renown in World War II for fighting in the mountains is called the 10th Mountain Division. And they had trained in the in the Rockies in the United States, which are very, very high mountains. Well, after World War II, they were moved to a very swampy, flat area called Fort Drum in New York. So these guys were not mountain ready, but some brainiac in the, in, in the US Army thought, oh, well, you know, the 10th Mountain Division, we're gonna send them to Afghanistan, that's mountains, right? And these guys were totally unprepared. So they went very brusquely from 5,000 feet to nearly 11,000 feet. And they just drop like beach whales on this mountaintop. The operation was called Operation Anaconda. They just could not fight. And they also didn't have proper gear because now the U.S. Army and most militaries, when they send men, men out in the mountains, they give them the type of clothing that, you, that civilian mountaineers wear. It's layerable, it's breathable, it, it wicks moisture, etc. But these guys had like cotton t-shirts and cotton uniforms, which would get soaked in sweat during the day when it was 70 degrees. And then the thing about mountains is the weather shifts. Suddenly it would go to below freezing and the snow would come and they'd still be shivering in their little t-shirts. And they had to throw their packs with their sleeping bags behind because they couldn't walk with 100 pounds of stuff on their backs having had this altitude sickness. So after this debacle, the US Army did begin to think a little bit more about how to better prepare people in Afghanistan. They did a better job later, but this was just a huge debacle. I'm David Stubbs. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Staying in this region for now, Kashmir, which is you know a contested region between India and Pakistan, and indeed China a little bit. Yeah. This is another long-lasting fight that's been going on, you know, rumbling on for for decades and decades and decades. Fifty years. You see, all these mm. intractable places are in the mountains. And indeed, you know, the. The idea behind the chapter on Kashmir in this book is basically that the you know the entire country, people that are involved, you know, on the sidelines or directly involved, losing their you know losing their children in these in this this long fight. The whole country is basically psychologically damaged, and you you meet a doctor who's working at a well. You tell us about this hospital that you go and visit. Yeah, it's place. the sole at that time. This mm. was several years ago. It was the sole psychiatric hospital in the capital, Srinagar, and this man would see anywhere between sixty to 100,000 patients a year. It was like the whole society was impacted. And according to mental health experts from Doctors Without Borders and other global mental health experts, this is probably one of the most traumatized populations in the world. And this doctor, you know, going into his consulting room was really interesting. I, I spent weeks with him in the wards. He would have basically five people in his consulting room at a time. Each person would get five minutes. And you have to realize, you know, people come with their families. So you'll be sitting in a room with like 50 people. There's a five-minute consultation. There's no such thing as patient confidentiality. That's just a luxury. And basically all he can do is hand out prescriptions. You know, people are coming from 
hours and hours away from up higher up in the mountains and they can't come in for weekly therapy sessions plus there's no time for him to give them to them so it's a highly medicated society and he named one syndrome that he called the knock on the door syndrome which is that so many soldiers and security forces had come knocking on people's doors in the middle of the night and took away the young men that if people were sleeping in their homes and they heard a loud noise outside, they would think that the security forces had come back. And he noticed that the level of psychiatric stress increased right around those hours after midnight when the, the memories of the, these, um, the knock on the door would happen. But it, it was really distressing. It was one of the most depressing places. And, you know, that, that conflict is intractable. You not only have two nuclear-armed powers... India and Pakistan fighting each other. But then you have about 14 different armed insurgent groups. Some are al-Qaeda affiliated. Some are strictly want Kashmir to be part of Pakistan. Others are more of a garden variety separatist movement. They just want independence. And so even if the two large nations could get together and agree on what to do about Kashmir, then you've got these 14 other groups drifting about, which are also sometimes fighting with each other. It's just metastasized into a horrible, horrible mess. And as is often the case with mountain regions, Kashmir is famously a place of great natural beauty as well. Staggering. That would be, I mean, you've hit upon a really interesting irony. You know, you're in some of the most glorious countryside you've ever seen, and all these places were in pristine areas because they're so remote. And yet there's that contradiction between the peacefulness and the the purity of nature that hikers will go and seek, and then the brutality of some of these conflicts. And it it really, um, yeah, it's in very stark um, relief, this contradiction. You spoke to some of the the mothers who's sons had, had gone missing often again decades before they were you know and they're in this sort of weird position where if their husband has gone missing but obviously the you know the, the government are not admitting to the fact that they've taken him so she can't like fully be a widow she can't claim money get a pension or anything because and that sort of thing is obviously you know compounds the problems but again you talk to a woman whose name i've not written down so you'll have to remind Harvina. me if you remember yeah who's um again is has become you know through being one of those women herself has sort of taken on the mantle of all of these people yeah parvina hangar um she's been nominated for nobel prize for peace let's see if mm-hmm. she ever gets it um yeah it's interesting i see this in so many countries that also aren't mountainous for instance when when russian soldiers went missing in chechnya it was the mother's group that was the most powerful force of opposition and outspoken indignation likewise the 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 mothers of the the plaza de mayo during the argentina's um dirty wars it's you know being a mother i I, I think i could understand that i think if my son disappeared in the middle night i'd be out there screaming at security forces so yeah so it's a group of mothers and i you know they they're able to criticize the indian occupation in a way nobody else can because there's a certain moral authority Mm -hmm. of a mother and they're they're, these women are fearless they they hold demonstrations they scream they fight they make a lot of noise they're a very um powerful force but they haven't gotten their sons back and they haven't gotten information about them. So they're a voice of opposition, but they're living in agony. And as you pointed out, the half-widows, it's particularly tragic because 
it is a society where oftentimes women are dependent on on a wider family and an extended family and if the husband goes missing but she hasn't been pronounced a widow she can't remarry so that also weakens her ability to support her children and oftentimes these women are thrown out of the house by their in-laws so they they're it's really it's it's a tragic tragic situation and then they're dealing with this unresolved grief you know the rituals that all societies have you bury somebody in some way or you burn them they cease to exist you mark it and then you move on they can't move on there's no ceremony Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Judith Matloff and we're talking about the war is in the mountains. And Judith, just before we broke there, you mentioned Chechnya. And we're going to the the Caucasus now. You visit both Chechnya and uh, Dagestan. Again, both former part of the you know the Soviet Republic and then you know once that had collapsed both tried to assert as you know all those other places did try to assert their independence from Russia um we all know what happened there you know they were obviously you know very violently put down by the Russian forces um Grozny the capital of Chechnya was like you know completely raised to the ground and indeed you've you've recently been so what that's what's that like to to see a place that's basically been rebuilt very recently it's so sterile it's really bizarre because it's geographically in the same place but it doesn't look like the old place <laughs> and it's tacky also the strongman the local strongman had has terrible taste you might even call him his taste is like donald trump's and there's a lot of gold guilt and there you know there uh, it's it's just it's Certain parts of it reminded me almost of a theme park Mm -hmm. because it was so new and it was so showy. And for long-term residents, for those who remained during the the two wars in the 1990s or who came back afterwards, they felt, you know, they often say that they they feel the city's lost its soul. So this is, you mentioned the the, the strongman, this is um, Kadyrov. Kadyrov, yeah. Kadyrov, Ramzan Kadyrov, who is the son of a former leader who was assassinated 
And as you said, he's not, you know, I mean, his, his father was uh, not that great, but his son's like, not, not, nothing like his father. Yeah, he's a bit of a playboy warlord, I guess you could describe him. He has a, a private zoo with tigers. Mm-hmm. I don't know, what is it about these strongmen? I mean, Pablo Escobar was the same way. He, I think he also had tigers or lions or something. And, you know, he has, a, he has race horses and he, um, he likes to hold big events where he's the star. He's either playing soccer with a, a big team or he gets singers um, and celebrities over. Hilary Swank came to one event. Um, so I, I, he reminds me very much of my, um, my president of the moment, actually. You know, a, a very flamboyant, not too bright, very showy, tacky individual who has no respect whatsoever for democratic norms. And it's a very repressive government that he's got locally. Yeah, and the other thing that's going on is uh, this is obviously a region that was um, always, you know, predominantly Muslim, but, uh, you know, of, of a sort of much more sort of like a Sufi yeah. strand. It's become a lot more hardline. Obviously, we've seen a lot of the um, the lads who did the Boston bombing, the Boston Marathon bombing come from this this sort of region and were obviously um, sort of radicalised through what was going on back there as well. And that's obviously, you know, compounds the issues that are going on there, that are suddenly... You know, you, you speak to some um, women journalists and translators there and you know, there's a scene where you, you're meeting them in the cafe and they're all, you know, having to talk about covering up and things. Yeah, they. <laughs> what, what a lot of women do in, um, in Chechnya, because people didn't cover up until Kadyrov came in and mm-hmm. ordered it in public places, public buildings. What a lot of women do is they wear a very thick he- headband. It's almost what women used to wear in the 1960s. And it's really bizarre because sometimes they'll wear like incredibly micro mini skirts, but then the head is nominally covered. But other women will go more covered. And um, these women who I meet in the cafe, one of them had been victim of an attack. Um, She was wearing a fairly, you know, she, she wasn't wearing a scarf and her skirt wasn't down to her ankles. So somebody shot a paintball into her leg and there was a spate of that going on for a while about five years ago that seems to have stopped but yeah there was huge harassment of women who don't assume traditional dress which was never really the norm there so what was the situation like in terms of because again we're talking about Chechnya here but we should not forget that this is another mountainous region yeah again another place similar I guess more than anywhere else to to Albania that we've talked about already um, in that there are these sort of like very cut off communities of people what do they call them not tribal but like sort of like family clan clan groups which is exactly what you have in albania yeah Yeah, it's a very eastern europe thing and um yeah i mean in dagestan there's 62 different language groups and again it's a bit like papua new guinea which has 800 language groups these very very mountainous areas um each valley and you find it in afghanistan as well Mm -hmm. you know you on one in one valley they'll speak one language you cross over the mountain to the next valley and they speak a completely different language so Dagestan has 62 different languages and in chechnya depending on how you count them you there's up to 150 different clans and these clans they're very effective as a fighting force because, again, these are very cohesive communities and each clan is quite defensive. And, and now you, you find there's a warlord culture, very much like you have in Afghanistan as well. And that is very conducive to clan-based society. And so what happened is during the Mongol invasions, 
these clans would form, the villages would, would, they would have defensive units, very much like the Mexicans in mm -hmm. La Montaña, where traditionally, you know, you would, you would protect your village. And it's very effective in terms of mobilization, because if you can, because all the men in the village are ready to fight to defend it. And then the same social and military structure was used when the Tsar's army was extending into the Caucasus. Likewise, these clans could be mobilized into fighting units, and then they were remobilized again during the two Chechen wars in the 1990s. I just want to talk about Dagestan for, for a minute, but before we do, I mean, this is not in the book because it's a much more recent thing, but Chechnya seems to be sort of cropping up in the news at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's horrific. It's, it's really, really horrific. And the problem is Chechens, if they want to flee Chechnya and go to Moscow, the environment in Moscow is pretty homophobic too. Mm -hmm. The government's very homophobic. So but also those people are not really welcome in Moscow anyway. They're no. like sort of second-class citizens, the Chechens themselves. Absolutely, yeah. And it's, uh, so they're kind of getting a double, a double um, discrimination at, for being from the North Caucasus and also for being homosexual. No, it's horrific. It's, uh, I mean, Kadyrov has no respect whatsoever for human rights. And um, it's scapegoating, as we see in my country. It's a very common tool of an authoritarian leader to, you know, you scapegoat people, and therefore people who you see as your, as your enemy are weak. And it's, it's a diversionary tactic, as it were. Um, but no, it's very, very tragic. Some of them have been able to come to the United States, but uh, now it's harder for Muslims to get political asylum or even to get visas to go to the United States. So what was once a refuge is, is less so. So a lot of them have gone to Canada. Dagestan, what was the... Contrast Dagestan to, to what Chechnya was like. What was, what was the sort of situation there like? Well, when I was there, it was 2010, 2011, the jihadis were still active. The, the time that I was there in the capital, Mahashkala, they were setting off a lot of bombs in um, establishments that served alcohol. And, um, you know, you really have to do your research when you decide to embark on a trip like this. And I, you know, the photographer I was traveling with, who is from the region, I said, you know, you know, I like to drink. Let's stay in a place where I can get beer in the evening. And then we're staying there. And it's like, what was I thinking? Like, they're probably going to bomb the bar here. But my biggest problem was not somebody bombing the hotel bar. Fortunately, they didn't do that. My biggest problem is that we get a little bit careless with our reporting. Um, we were interviewing a lot of people, mothers, whose sons had disappeared or husbands had disappeared. And we got, um, we got on the radar of the security forces and the FSB, and they hauled us into, the, into an interrogation cell of um, you know, the anti-terrorist unit. And it, it, it really, it was so cinematographic because there was a, they, they both had Beatles haircuts. I think like these people watch reruns of Man from Uncle and they think that's how you're supposed to look when you're a spy. But anyway, so they had like turtlenecks and tight pants and these Beatles haircuts. And um, so there was a good cop and a bad cop. And the bad cop was, you know, you're not going to get out of here. We're going to kill you. We're going to find out all your sources. And the good cop was... We really want to help you. We know you want to get out. Would you like a cup of tea? Let's just talk about what you were doing. And um, the bad cops seemed to be convinced that we were jihadists, which is kind of weird because like, I'm a Jewish American woman, you know, but anyway. But the nice cops seemed nice. So, and I'd been taught with safety training, something I do in my own safety training, you want to engage, you want to get a negotiation going. You don't want, you, you've got to get some sense of control. 
So I started telling him about my book. That was my cover story. It's like, oh, you know, I'm doing this book on the mountains and mountain people, you know, they're so different. And look at Papua New Guinea and the Basque country. And this guy had taken an anthropology course in college, in university. And he said, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. If we let you out, if there's some really interesting clans you have to visit, you know, higher up in the mountains. And, uh, and so I kept going on and on and on and on about my book, much as I am now. And at one point, the bad cop said, she's giving me a headache, just get her out of here. And that, you know, eventually we were freed shortly thereafter. But um, so my advice to you, all good authors out there, just talk about your book if you're in detention and you'll get freed. <laughs> I'm Jeff Dyer. You're listening to Resonance FM. And this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's go back to Afghanistan, or at least back to the people that have been to Af- Afghanistan. Yeah. And, you know, America has learned its lessons somewhat um, about what happened over up in the mountains in Afghanistan. And you go to spend some time at a, a training course, a, a camp in Vermont. Um, what's going on there, man? What, what are they doing now that they weren't doing before? Yeah, this is the uh, US Army's main mountain warfare training center. This is a tiny little area in, in Vermont. As a matter of fact, it's so tiny that even locals don't know it exists. They know there's a firing range, but they didn't realize it was the army. It's, 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 it's kind of like an open, close-kept secret. So it has a fraction of the giant American military budget. And because we don't have a dedicated mountain fighting force, men will rotate through maybe for two to three weeks of training. And one of the main things that they learn is ropes. And so they learn basic mountaineering skills. They learn how to walk on um, snowshoes because it's really, you can shoot on top of snowshoes, but it's very hard on skis. So they'll learn that skill. They, they may also work on their skiing. But ropes are extraordinarily versatile. You can haul lots of gear with, with you. You can, um, if a helicopter, if you, if you got to get a, uh, if a helicopter wants to lift up a, you know, you throw up a rope to them and a man can shimmy up, you can go up a mountain, you can go down a mountain on it, you can go up a rock face, uh, you can transport a, a wounded body or a dead body. I mean, they're immensely versatile. And the big problem with fighting in mountains is that you can't get a tank up there and a plane can't land. And if it's at, at a certain altitude, even a helicopter can't land. So you, you can't really go in these big armored vehicles with all your supplies. The resupply is very, very difficult. But the ropes are very lightweight, so they can do a lot of things mm-hmm. that, you know, you can drag your stuff, for instance, with them. So they're very, very useful. And the other thing, obviously, to, to note about mountains, as well as, you know, being high and difficult to breathe, they're obviously cold as well. Oh, cold. <laughs> um, you go to a, a cold training army cause in Norway as well. Um, Norway, obviously, you know, they become experts on mountain warfare and, and, and cold survival warfare to the extent that armies from elsewhere around the world go there to train. Um, and you went to this, you went to, to visit this course. Tell us about what they do there. Yeah, this is the NATO Arctic Training Centre. So they're training people on glaciers. And the thing about altitude is if you go up and you go down and you go up and you down, you know, over several months, your lungs will increase and you can adapt to a certain altitude. There is a limit to how much cold you can adapt to. So even, for instance, the sniffer dogs that sniff out people that are buried in avalanches, they can't go out below a certain temperature. 
And, you know, if you've got problems with ballistics at an altitude, it's even worse with high cold. Your batteries drain, your, you know, machinery freezes, and your, your corneas can burn, you get frostbite, there's even a high altitude cold psychosis that can set in. And the thing about camouflage works in forests and jungles, but it doesn't really work in the snow because the light changes. There's no one color white <laughs> that works with every type of cold white situation. And your breath gives you away. So it's, it's really, really challenging to, to fight in a situation like that. But the Norwegians do it as better than anybody except for maybe the Russians. And so this part that I went to, was it, it was very close to the shared border between Norway and Russia. And the reason why NATO is so concerned about this area is that Russia is militarizing right there right now. And so they feel they, they need to be there to be ready. As well, the glaciers are melting, and that's opening up a lot of oil wealth. And the Russians want to get in there, but NATO wants to be ready just in case. Now, I was in Slovenia earlier in the year, and um, I was aware vaguely of like you know Hemingway and the sort of Austrian Italian the front in the First World War. But I went to an incredible museum in in Slovenia that you know had photographs of. I was not aware that there was literally trenches across the top of you know the mountain ridges and. Um, and I, you know, saw then what you talk about in this book that you know there's terrible, long-lasting front. We saw lots and lots of people killed, most of them, actually killed by avalanches. And again, in Norway, they're experts in in dealing with you know the casualty, wartime casualties from avalanches. Yeah, well. they um what they will do, and they also um coalition forces also do this in Afghanistan. They try to map an area and figure out the likelihood of, of an avalanche. But the thing about avalanches is, you know, it changes from day to day. It mm-hmm. depends on how thick the snow is, um, the, the level of hoar, and how the slope is and whether it's mol- melted or frozen over. But just to go back to World War One on this Austro-Italian front, in one single 24-hour period, about 10,000 men died from an avalanche. I mean, that's just staggering, staggering amount of people. And... We still don't know to this day, there's some speculation that it was triggered deliberately because depending on, again, the, the, the thickness of the snow and how it sloped and whatnot, just one gunshot or one skier could set off an avalanche. And they, you know, it, it, it opens up a frightening prospect of could they be used as a weapon of war? I mean, it they're... seems like a no-brainer, though. Like, <laughs> they would, wouldn't they? Surely, like... The very question, was it done deliberately? It never even occurred to me that it wouldn't have been. Yeah, I mean, we'll never know because all these people are dead. So, you know, we can't ask them. But, but um, I mean, it is, it is a really disturbing notion. Hmm. If all it takes is one gunshot, if, if the conditions are yeah. right, that's a terrifying amount of people you could kill in a very short period of time. We're quickly running out of time. But what I want to finish up with is at the end of the book, you go to another mountainous hellhole. <laughs> um, uh, Switzerland, actually, I, I joke. Switzerland, you're looking at here as a way in which you know the mountainous communities can actually come together and find a way, despite their remoteness from each other, despite their various ethnic and linguistic differences. A place can come together and forge a a unique and interesting political system that means that you know they don't have 
any of the problems that uh, I mean obviously a lot of uh, you know Nazi gold and um, you know <laughs> secret banks help it as well but the political system in Switzerland tell me about that yeah well if you look at a map of Switzerland it looks like a cauliflower I mean there's just you know one mountain after one slope after one mountain I mean it's just covered and this created over the course of history very separated communities I mean again let's think Dagestan let's think Papua New Guinea it's very similar these very cut off valleys and um what we tend to forget is that Switzerland had a very violent past, and in, during the Renaissance, they were known for their mercenaries. The, again, like the Chechens, um, you know, they, they had hardened bands of young men in these villages that would defend the villages, and they were fantastic fighters, like the Gurkhas, and so they would export their young men to, as mercenaries for the French and the Italian princely states. And we still see a vestige of that today. If you go to the Vatican, the Vatican guards, you know, they were, they're holding the halberds and they're wearing those silly clothes from the Renaissance. Those are the remnants of the Swiss mercenaries. So they had a bit of a fighting history and fighting spirit. And then about 170 years ago, there was actually a civil war. It's a very brief one, but it was very intense. And the system, the political system that came out of that was a confederation that devolved probably the most advanced form of direct democracy that you see anywhere in the world. So each of the 26 cantons has a tremendous amount of control over its own affairs. The other thing which the Confederation did, which was really clever, is instead of dictating one national identity, uh, as has happened, let's say, in Russia with the Chechens, or you know, one dominant, or the Spaniards with Catalonia, or Iraq with the Kurds, in, instead of dictating one national identity to which uh, minority groups are supposed to conform, they said, you know, we're going to have four national identities along the, the four language groups. And we're not going to have one dominant religion. We've been fighting long enough. Everybody can be whatever they want. Just be it in your own village. And it's worked. I mean, it's worked. I mean, the levels of control that people have over their own affairs is massive. Taxation is always a very big thing. That was part of what was behind the anger amongst in Kurdistan against the Iraqis and the Catalans against Spain. You don't have that kind of issue in Switzerland. And it just struck me that, you know, they, they understood who they were. They're really insular mountain people. They understood that. So they said, okay, we're going to embrace it and we're going to accept it instead of trying to fit everybody into some kind of political system where they don't fit. That's the answer to the, uh, to the question then. Be more like Switzerland, Chechnya. <laughs> and make chocolates. <laughs> Um, so I've been talking to Judith Matlov. We've been talking about The War is in the Mountains, Violence in the World's High Places, which is out now from Duckworth Overlook Books. Judith, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about it. Thank you. This is a pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.